Welcome to the Buddha Sasana podcast. This talk was given by Bhikkhu Chintita in Chisago City, Minnesota. How the original meaning of mindfulness got lost. So my claim of last week is that mindfulness is not what it used to be. The label mindfulness was initially affixed to Dhammic know-how or memory of the Dhamma, Sati, in Pali, what I'm calling proficiency now. But somehow that label was detached from Sati and is now affixed to something else, bare awareness. When I say mindfulness with quotes, I mean whatever it is the word is now attached to. Mindfulness is no longer memory, proficiency, or sati. Today, I want to talk about how it got detached from its old meaning. Next week, I'll talk about how it acquired its new meaning. First, let me talk a little bit more about its old meaning. We saw last week that in the early texts, sati, or proficiency, has a counterpart in sampajanya, or clear apprehension. Clear apprehension is what is attentive to the details of the current practice situation to arrive at an interpretation in accord with proficiency. This actually sounds a little more like modern mindfulness, and together they form the basis of right proficiency samasati, as originally suggested by Rhys Davids to support performance in accord with Dhamma of every aspect of Buddhist wisdom and ethical practice, working alongside right effort and alongside right view. Right Right view is the the forerunner. And And how how is right view the forerunner? One discerns wrong action as wrong action and right action as right action. One tries to abandon wrong action and to enter into right action. This is one's right effort. One remembers to abandon wrong action and to enter and remain in right action. This is one's right proficiency. Thus, these three qualities, right view, right effort, and right proficiency, Run and circle around right action. This passage is repeated as for action for each of you, resolve speech and livelihood. Buddhist practice across the board is thereby performed on the basis of Dhammic knowledge, standards, values, viewpoints, and learned skills which have been acquired in developing right view and are brought to bear through right sati and energized through right effort. The practice of right proficiency will often give rise spontaneously to right samadhi as well, concentration. For one of right sati, right samadhi springs up. 
Accordingly, we remember our precepts as we go about our lives or, after some training, behave according to the precepts spontaneously without thinking about them. We've also learned to monitor our intentions and remember to do so. And we remember the standards for differentiating wholesome and unwholesome intentions. We keep in mind the values of renunciation, kindness, and non-harming as guiding principles throughout the day, as well as our commitment to living a Buddhist life. We recall what the Buddha taught about impermanence and non-self, or, after some training, we actually perceive the world directly in these terms. Differences between early and modern understandings. The disconnect between sati in the early texts and modern mindfulness is easily and strikingly appreciated if we try to imagine how the gatekeeper or how the bloke carrying the oil past the dancing girl mentioned in the similes last week would gain any help whatever through entering into a state of bare, preconceptual, or non-judgmental awareness. Moreover, how do we guard the senses with no idea of what is evocative of unwholesome desires that we need to guard against? How would right mindfulness help as it circles around right action, for instance, if it cannot fulfill its function of discriminating or judging wholesome from unwholesome? Moreover, how would we revisit or further develop insights previously obtained through contemplative mindfulness practice without memory? The disconnect is also appreciated in noting that mindfulness is consistently represented as passive or receptive in modern literature, whereas sati is actually involved as a conditioning factor in the successful performance of particular practices in the early texts. For instance, a sudden crash in the next room would likely introduce a new task, figuring out what the hell is going on. However, it wouldn't draw in our mindfulness. It would be more likely to disrupt it. It would, however, bring relevant proficiency to mind, activating new factors in working memory in order to provide the basis for clearly apprehending the newly arisen circumstance. A striking difference between the early and modern accounts of these matters is how comparatively precise the early teachings are in marked contrast to the modern accounts of mindfulness which tend to connote or intimate more than analyze what they describe. For instance, mindfulness is often described as being present. I have never seen a coherent analysis of what this even means, though it does seem subjectively to mean something. How can one not be present both in body and mind? Every thought, action, breath, craving, perception, feeling, or impulse arises in the present moment. But every recollection, manifestation of proficiency, aspiration, anticipation, and daydream 
arises in the present as well, even while these things bear content concerning something past, future, or atemporal as well. Would I be present, for instance, if I were to follow this guided meditation? If you should be distracted by a noise in the room, just let the distraction go and gently return to where you were in the daydream. It should be noticed that many of the exercises of the Satipatthana Sutta, generally called Foundations of Mindfulness Sutta, depend on visualizing what is not immediately physically apparent as an aspect of the present situation. For instance, the body in future states of decay or the body parts that are below the skin, both of which rely on our previous knowledge of such things, knowledge drawn from memory. Are we being present when we reflect on these? A Genealogy of Mindfulness The story of how mindfulness got mislabeled begins in colonial Burma about the turn of the 20th century and takes us to the United States by the 1970s. Burma. The 19th century had been very disruptive of the traditional cultural and religious fabric in many Asian lands under the hegemonic influence of European cultural power with varying indigenous responses. Prior to British occupation, the Buddha Sasana had been supported by three pillars in Buddhist Burma, the royal government, the Sangha, and the society at large. But then the British deposed the king in 1885 to fully control the levers of governmental power throughout Burma, showed little interest in supporting the Sasana themselves, and curtailed the ability of the Sangha to participate in domestic affairs. This resulted in great concern in Burma for the continued well-being of Burmese society at large and for the viability of the Buddha Sasana in particular. A prominent monk, Lady Siero, 1846-1923, encouraged a doubling down in practice and understanding as a way to respond to the situation. In ethics, in doctrinal study, largely Abhidhamma, and later in insight meditation, Vipassana, based on the 5th century Visuddhi Magga, for all Buddhists. Lady began a lecture circuit throughout Burma and established ad hoc study and practice groups wherever he went and published widely in order to convey this message. He was already a well-known public figure and popular speaker with a knack for teaching complex Dhammic concepts in simple terms and with less than traditional reliance on knowledge of the Pali language. Let's make a quick reality check here with respect to our topic of interest. Lady's teaching on sati is described as representing the ability to bring knowledge of the Dhamma to bear on the present moment rooted in one of the establishings, upatanas, 
In other words, it's a sort of double-faceted mental state, recollection of Buddhist truths combined with awareness of immediate sensit experience. So he was precisely on board with the age-old traditional view also recognized by Rhys Davids at that stage and consistent with what I just described as right sati. Lady's promotional efforts are generally regarded as the primary impetus for a mass movement of lay participation in aspects of Buddhist practice heretofore largely, but not exclusively, reserved for monks and many prominent teachers of Dhamma and Vipassana facilitated this development. The scope of the popular interest in meditation practice was perhaps unprecedented in Buddhist history, such that various meditation teachers attracted large followings and founded schools that are still well known in Burma today, almost certainly the meditatingest nation in the world. Many teachers promoted techniques that were well integrated with the body of Buddhist practice and understanding, ethics, and doctrinal study. For instance, Monyin Siero was popular in the 1930s and required students to learn Abhidhamma before beginning Vipassana practice. Mogok Siero taught a method rooted in studying dependent co-arising before beginning Vipassana practice. However, it should be noted that Vipassana schools across the board tended to disregard the teaching of samadhi or jhana, practices that are treated as extremely difficult but unnecessary in the foundational Visuddhimagga, in stark contrast to the early texts. This marginalization of jhana would play a significant role later in our story of how mindfulness would come to be conceived. Popular Vipassana Other teachers recognized the limits in time and energy available to most householders and so promoted methods whereby Vipassana could be taken up wholeheartedly as a standalone practice largely isolated from ethics and doctrine, as well as from an ascetic lifestyle. The second trend naturally garnered more popular appeal, but also evoked criticism for weakening the Dhamma. In early 20th century Burma, one of the most successful popularizers was Uba Kin, 1899-1971, a government official second in a rare non-monastic teaching lineage whose lay teacher was allegedly authorized to teach by Lady Sierro himself. Uba Kin downplayed study, developed a simple method intentionally congenial even to non-Buddhists, but also advocated a rigid schedule of meditation with 10-day periods of intense practice. Uba Kin's disciple, S.N. Goenka, 1924-2013, a businessman who emigrated to India in 1969 and further marginalized doctrine, claiming that the Buddha had only taught an art of living rooted in meditation. 
Goenka founded a worldwide meditation movement that significantly distanced itself from its Buddhist roots. Most influential among the popularizers was Mingun Jetawana Sero, 1870-1955, from whom most modern Vipassana teachers in Myanmar descend. He endeavored to strip the teaching of Satipatthana Sutta down to its most essential elements so that it could be mastered with minimal effort, seemingly having taken very seriously the description of the Satipatthana as the one way to liberation, as justification for treating it as a standalone practice, and as the basis of the claim, unsupported in the early texts, that one could acquire the initial stages of awakening in a very short time through Vipassana alone. Mingun appears to have developed the expedient of making spare reference to Dhamma, at least in the introductory stages of his method, in contrast to many of his peers in Burma. Like Ubakin, he made use of an intensive retreat format, in fact, founding the very first group meditation center in 1911. The clever, innovative method of noting allowed practice to be brought into ever-changing contexts throughout the day ubiquitously and fluidly, rather than being fixed in one of the standard exercises at any one time, even turning distractions into opportunities for practice. Mingun Sierra's most prominent student was Mahasi Sierra, 1904-1982, who refined his teacher's techniques and founded the most widely known internationally of the Vipassana schools. The German monk Nyanaponika Chera, 1901-1994, who had long lived in Sri Lanka, studied meditation in Myanmar under Mahasi Sierra in the early 50s and became highly influential abroad through his 1954 book, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation, in which he coined the term bare attention. Nyanaponika describes in his book what he calls the Burmese method based on the Satipatthana Sutta as explicated by Mingun and Mahasi as a practice of continuous observation in a manner that breaks down common experience into discrete, momentary, and localized events. To achieve this requires careful control of attention and non-distractedness. A fundamental principle is that the first steps of this method are grounded in a yogi's own experience without theoretical explanation, although a meditation master can provide some input by suggesting that a student turn his attention to a particular experience so that the yogi might gain insights into phenomena as they present themselves. It's within this movement that the discrepancy between mindfulness and sati as proficiency arose through the stripping of dhamma from meditation practice to meet the needs of a diverse set of practitioners 
of limited time and energy. Next week, we'll learn how mindfulness ended up with that label. To learn more about the Rethinking the Satipatthana Project, please go to sirigu.org slash chintita. That is s-i-t-a-g-u dot org c-i-n-t-i-t-a.